This is First Farragut United Methodist Church's podcast. Welcome back and thanks for joining us. This month, our sermon series is entitled Reboot, and today, for our second week of this series, we will reimagine regret. Regret can trap us in the sorrow and remorse of what did or did not happen in our lives. The pain and experiences of regret are not something to simply live with. Rather, the ways that God uses our regrets for God's purposes are something we should share. Reverend Martha Scott shares how we can reimagine regret. Good morning. Our scripture this morning is from 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has given me the strength for my work because he knew he could trust me. I used to say terrible and insulting things about him, and I was cruel. But Christ had mercy on me because I didn't know what I was doing, and I had not yet put my faith in him. Christ Jesus, our Lord, treated me with undeserved grace and has greatly blessed my life with faith and love just like his own. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This saying is true, and it can be trusted. I was the worst sinner of all, but since I was worse than anyone else, God had mercy on me and let me be an example of the endless patience of Christ. He did this so that others would put their faith in Christ and have eternal life. I pray that honor and glory will always be given to the only God who lives forever and is the invisible and eternal King. Amen. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. How is it with your soul? Fairly easy question, right? No, no way, right? I planned that. I'd like to take credit for planning that. How is it with your soul? Not an easy question. When we greet someone, what is the most common thing we ask? How are you? And what is the most common answer? I'm fine. Now, if you want to be grammatically correct, you'll usually say, I'm well, thank you. How are you? But they, whomever they is, I hear, say that I'm fine is the biggest lie or most commonly told lie in our society. How is it with your soul, however? That packs a different punch. Makes you ask the question, well, what is my soul? Makes you think, are you asking me if I'm going to heaven? And some of us may say, well, it's none of your business. How is it with your soul is a different question. It's not a question we ask strangers. It's not a general greeting that we ask someone. It's certainly not something that you enter into conversation with at a cocktail party. Unless you want to stand in the corner with your drink and your little little square envelope alone. Because nobody wants to answer that sort of question. Sadly, it's a question that we don't ask often ask much in the church either. It is, however, a question that the man whom we credit as, our, as, as founding the United Methodist Movement, John Wesley, asked regularly. It's actually a question that if we, if we got right down to it and looked through history of the United Methodist Church, it's probably the reason that we sit here under the umbrella of a United Methodist Church. John Wesley never, ever, ever set out to start a new denomination. 
He never set out to be a systematic theologian. He actually failed miserably as a missionary, and he really wasn't that great of a preacher. Some of his contemporaries, actually one named George Whitfield, who happened to be most people in his era in the early in the mid-18th century, say George Whitfield was the best preacher of that day. But on his deathbed, Whitfield credited Wesley with having a greater impact on the gospel of Jesus Christ than all of Whitfield's eloquent sermons because of Wesley's method, which to some degree hinged on that question. Wesley's method consisted of biblical and a biblical teaching and preaching. He believed in biblical knowledge, that learning the scriptures was an important part of being a follower of Jesus. And so that was a big piece of it. But there was another portion of it that Wesley affected change. And so he created a system where people met in what we would call small groups today. They're not new, by the way. They've been around for about 300 years, probably longer than that. But it's what we would call small groups. And in those groups, they would have some soul-searching discussions. The Bible and Scripture was a part of that, yes. But they would enter into dialogue with deep questions. First of which was, how is it with your soul? Those groups and the questions were designed to bring about behavioral changes. Not just knowledge increase, but behavioral changes. He knew that that question had a direct bearing on how a person was experiencing the rehabilitative grace of Jesus Christ. He knew that in order to experience true freedom that Jesus came to bring, we have to let go of our past and let God's Holy Spirit do God's healing work. Regrets can wreak havoc on our soul. Regrets have a debilitating impact on us psychologically, physically, on our, in our health, mentally, and emotionally. Regrets, by definition, are a, a negative cognitive, meaning something we, we know in our head, or an emotional state that involves blaming ourselves for a bad outcome. It, 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 it's a sense, a feeling of loss or sorrow at what might have been, what we could have done differently, what we wish we could undo. And many of us have our regrets on instant replay. Tis the season for instant replay, as we saw yesterday. Many of us have our regrets on instant replay. And when we have them on instant replay, all they do is paralyze us prevent us from moving forward, and in many cases, they prevent us from believing that God could actually love us and that others could actually love us also. Now, some regrets may just be a part of life. I was sharing with a couple of folks last week that one of my greatest regrets in life, and I think I've shared this with many of you before, is having not gone in the military. I would have rocked the military. Highly structured, highly disciplined. Now, in the career paths that would have opened up, in the retirement that I would have, all of that would have been wonderful. Serving the country, all of that would have been wonderful. But it hasn't really had a, a negative impact on my life. I mean, my quality of life is it's pretty good. I have a good life. So some of us have those kind of regrets. Things we wish we had done, but 
for the most part, they haven't had a, a significant detrimental impact on our life. So those are some regrets. But what about those things that keep us awake at night? What about those things that no one knows about? And we would not dream of sharing them with somebody because they would judge us. They might cease to love us. They might view us differently. It might be something no one knows about. It might be an adult website that we visit for fleeting moments of adrenaline and days of shame come afterwards. It might be a heated conversation that ended a friendship or a relationship. It might be an infidelity in marriage. It might be that embarrassing thing that happened all the way back in high school, but by golly, we still cling to it. And more times than not, our regrets are the hurtful words we say to the people we love the most on a daily basis. Many of us view those regrets as something that we just live with. Living with regret, however, doesn't bring joy and freedom. Living with regret keeps us in chains. But regrets can actually be helpful. We began a series last week entitled Reboot, in which we're looking at these four weeks in September, some topics that can help us reboot our relationship with Jesus, because every once in a while we need a little restart. And reimagining regret is one of those steps. Asking Wesley's question about our souls, while it can be painful, brings regret to the surface. But regrets can be nothing less than stories of God's lavish grace. We're using uh, four scriptures to guide us through this series, looking drawn from letters written by a man named Paul. Now, if ever there was a man who earned the right, the medal, the badge, whatever you want to call it, to live a life riddled with regret, it was Paul. But if Paul just lived with his regret, rather than allowing God's lavish grace to wash over his regret and to transform him, if Paul had not allowed that, we would not have half of what we call the New Testament in the Bible. The New Testament in the Bible, the portion that tells uh, God's story interacting with humans from the birth of Jesus on through the first century or so of the church, contains 27 books, 21 of which are letters. The way the early church learned how to be the church was through correspondence. We didn't have email back in the first century. I know that surprises you all, but there was a time when there wasn't email. And so the way the early church founders or fathers, if you want to call them, helped churches be church was to write letters to them, to help them learn how to, or to coach them, I guess you would say, on being church and how to address some of the challenges that they were facing. Paul, of those 21 letters, wrote 13. And it appears that Paul had a right-hand man, and his name was Timothy. Timothy was a colleague and a companion and, and, and often accompanied uh, Paul on some missionary journeys. In fact, many scholars believe that Timothy co-authored many of Paul's letters. 
These letters were written to churches to help them understand how to be the church. I came across a, a posting on Facebook this week that if you, if you look at all of Paul's letters and, and apply a general outline to them, they start off with something like this, a greeting of grace, words of grace, a thanksgiving for the people of who they are and what they're doing, a, a reminder to hold fast to the love of God, and this, for all things holy, stop being stupid. And then in the end, it says, Timothy said hi. So Timothy is apparently in many of Paul's letters and has accompanied him. But there are two letters that bear the name Timothy. The reason they bear the name Timothy is it appears that Paul wrote those letters to Timothy while Timothy was at, out on missionary journeys. So following the, the normal, the typical form of a, a Pauline, we call it letter, after some introductory greetings of grace, Paul begins to dive right into the subject matter of what he's trying to help Timothy do. We're going to walk through some of this step by step just a little bit to see what Paul is trying to say about witnessing to Paul's story as he teaches Timothy to lead others. In the scripture that we read, he began with, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me the strength for my work because he knew he could trust me. Does that sound a little arrogant? Can you imagine saying, God chose me because God knew that I would be the one to do the job, that I would be obedient in every single thing God told me to do. Only me, I could do that. That's why God chose me. Can you imagine saying such a thing? I can assure you that when I began wrestling with a call to ministry, I said the opposite. I had pages of reasons of why this was a bad idea. I cannot imagine saying such a thing. But what if, what if we read that a little differently? What if we read that as Paul is saying this? Christ Jesus, our Lord, he who has given me the strength for my work because he knew he could trust me. What if, rather than being arrogant, Paul is saying, although I was a hot mess, an utter hot mess, I thank Christ Jesus because he knew me better than I knew myself. What if Paul is saying that? What if he's saying, I would have never chosen me for this job, but God, on the other hand, God clearly knew the real me. God clearly knew that if God put God's strength in me, then I could do this work. Do you see how that changes the interpretation of it? Just a little bit. Paul went on to write, he's, he's saying, I used to say terrible and insulting things about him, Jesus. He says, I was cruel. The first time we see this man whom we call Paul enter the scenes of the first century church, we don't know exactly how many years after Jesus' resurrection it was. Three, four, five, six, somewhere around in there. The first time we're introduced to this man named Paul, he is standing looking on approvingly at a man being stoned because that man claimed Jesus as Savior and Messiah. And Paul's just standing there. He's actually holding all the coats of those who are doing the stoning and he's approving of it. 
Then after that, Paul began to go town to town to try to root out followers of Jesus. He had letters in hand from all the authorities uh, to, to, to go and find whoever it is claiming Jesus to be Savior and to convince them to change their ways or arrest them, punish them, and in some cases, put them to death. Does that sound like someone that God could, as Paul began, trust to obey, to do all that God led him to do? Does that sound like someone that God could trust to be a minister, a proclaimer of Jesus Christ, when he's out trying to arrest people who claim Jesus as Savior? But then Paul continues and he says, but Christ had mercy on me. Because I didn't know what I was doing. He went on to say, I did all of that before I had an encounter with Jesus. And if you want to read about Paul's encounter with Jesus, that's a whole other sermon. It's in the book of Acts. Strongly recommend it. But in other words, what Paul is saying, I did all of that out of ignorance. I simply didn't know what I was doing. But even so, God still had mercy on me, Paul. Our regrets, the things we regret, usually occur because we don't know what we're thinking. Sure, we have some sense of right and wrong. We have some sense of, oh, I am really about to blow it, but man, this is going to make me feel good. And we do it anyway. What are those frames of mind that, we, that take over when we're about to do something we regret? had someone say to me the other day, you're awfully cranky. I said, no, I'm hungry. What are the frames of mind that overpower us when we know we're about to do something that's going to hurt us or others? Hunger is one of them. Anger, lonely, tired, a short-sightedness. Any number of things can lead to what Paul is saying, I didn't know what I was doing. But then he says, Christ Jesus treated me with an undeserved grace. The Greek word for undeserved grace is charis. You know you were getting a Greek lesson today. But what it does, it implies that someone stepped in on behalf of another who did not deserve someone to step in on their behalf and who could not help themselves. Undeserved grace. What Paul is trying to say, while I was still breathing out insults to Jesus, while I was harming those who claimed to follow him, him, Jesus, he, Jesus, lavished me with this undeserved gift, picked me up out of that wallowing misery and changed me so that I, Paul, could love like Jesus did. And he wraps all of that up by saying, Jesus came to save sinners the worst of which was me. Paul's story shows us that God can take the most radical of regrets and turn them into stories of grace. Paul didn't rehash his whole story here in this particular letter. He did that in a couple of places elsewhere. He didn't rehash the details of what happened, but what he did do was share this story of amazing grace. This grace that not only saved him, but changed him. 
had he chosen to just live with that regret, it wouldn't have changed him. Sharing regret, thus allowing the power of the Holy Spirit to transform it into a story of grace, will change us. The good news of Jesus Christ, as we have contained in the Bible, was not told by a bunch of pious, perfect people. Thanks be to God. God took broken, messed up people, turned their regrets into stories of grace, and gave us the message of this grace to carry on. These broken people simply shared the healing grace that they experienced. There's a saying that we can't really find the original person to give this credit to. There's a saying that the gospel of Jesus Christ is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Our regrets make us beggars of grace. When we're vulnerable, willing to be vulnerable and honest about those regrets with each other and with God, we find grace. And finding that grace helps us share it with fellow beggars of grace. That regret, whatever it may be, that regret of infidelity, God can turn it to a story of grace. That regret of hurtful words that you said to your spouse, your child, your friend, God can turn that into a story of grace. That secret that you've kept hidden for years, God can turn that into a story of grace. So let me ask you again, how is it with your soul? What regrets of yours is God longing to turn into a story of grace? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Be sure to join us next week as we continue our sermon series, Reboot. As Martha discusses how to reframe prayer, we are called to ask a revealing question. For whom am I, are we, unwilling to pray for? The challenge is to see the scope of our prayers as a barometer of our understanding of God's reach. See you then.